0: How many people in your life have you bumped up against and felt the need to define their significance? My guess is very few. I really struggled. Like how many times have I heard somebody speaking and I said, man, who is this person? (laughs) I mean, is this God? Or what? I mean, how many people have you ever met where you came away like feeling the need to explain them and their awesomeness? My guess is just very few, if any. And there's something going on in the crowd, in the presence of Jesus, where when they bump up against Jesus, they have to explain him. They have to categorize him. They have to dismiss him or embrace him. They have to, in some way, bed down this rising level of emotion and concern or just fully embrace it. And I think this is the way anybody who has ever authentically had an encounter with Jesus has to respond. Listen, for all that we look at the Pharisees and we say, well, they're wrong, they're jerks, at least their response to Jesus makes sense It does, because when you understand Jesus, you have to understand that he is either Lord, well, he's always Lord, but he is a Lord to submit to or to stand in opposition to. And so at least the Pharisees make sense. What I don't understand is somebody who looks at Jesus and yawns, who goes, so what? They have not yet seen Jesus, if that's how they respond. They've not yet understood the claims he's made on their lives and on mankind generally. They've not yet come to understand who he claims to be in total. Because to see him is to see him accurately demands that you define him. Who is this guy exactly? What does this mean? All these words he's saying, the works he's doing, this feeling that I have with me, which feels supernatural in response to him, what is going on, I have to classify this, that does not happen in normal human interactions, even an amazing human being. Think of the greatest rock star ever. You don't come away from that wondering who that person is. You go, that guy's an incredibly gifted musician, or what a performer. You don't don't feel at the end of it like, who who is this person exactly? (laughs) That's what's happening here, though. This is what happens when human beings come into contact with God. And it's happening here. There is confusion, though, isn't there? Uh, In the effort on the part of many to define Jesus and categorize him, they come away with different conclusions. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? One of the interesting things about this is that in the Bible, we have the answer to this very question, don't we? In Matthew and Luke, they make the case very explicitly that Jesus is from Bethlehem, and Jesus is of the household of David. John nowhere makes that address, he just assumes it's common knowledge. What he's pointing out here is that this crowd was ignorant of that part of Jesus' story. Now being ignorant is okay, it is. I'm ignorant of lots of stuff, just ask Sarah. But ignorant is fine, willfully ignorant is another thing altogether. And the case I want to make this morning is that this crowd is willfully ignorant. And the reason why I say that is that if they had sought after answers, they would have found quite easily that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and was of the house of David. This is the lazy rationale of a heart that is already tipping towards unbelief. And we see this all the time. This phenomenon that's playing out in the crowd, if you've lived as a witness for Jesus Christ, I almost guarantee you, you've bumped into this. How many of you in your evangelistic efforts have ever had somebody push back with the claim that the Bible is full of contradictions? I have heard this personally loads of times. You start talking about the gospel, they say, well, I can't believe the Bible because it's just full of contradictions. I will tell you this, ask the, the next time this comes up, ask this, okay, uh, give me one example, uh, nine times out of ten, crickets, they don't have an example, they don't have some contradiction that they've seen personally, typically, they just have a general view of the Bible, maybe they've heard it from somebody else. Maybe they watched a Christopher Hitchens video on on YouTube or something like that and they've come away saying, okay, that's what I can say the next time somebody confronts me with the gospel. The Bible's full of contradictions. If on that one out of 10 times, they list a contradiction, a seeming contradiction that they're aware of, say, okay, how, how has the Bible, how has the Christian community over the years Dealt with that, reconciled that. How have they answered this seeming contradiction? Crickets. (laughs) If you get to that next level, I've never had it go beyond that to anything else but just crickets. I don't know, you tell me. What this is is the same thing in evidence that we're seeing in the crowd in Jerusalem. They are confronted with the alarming prospect that Jesus is something way more than has been experienced in the normal course of living a human life. He is something other. He is something holy and set apart. He is God. And as this rises, they either feel that I have to do something in response to this man. I have to bend the knee or I have to put up the dukes. I have to fight or flight or something. I have to do something here. And the way that they alleviate this feeling is they say, oh, but... He's not from Bethlehem. And they don't ever investigate it because they don't want to. That's what's going on here. I believe that these people are willfully ignorant. The facts were there for the asking. But they're not interested in that. They're just simply interested in putting this uncomfortable feeling to bed. They don't want to deal with Jesus. It's too much. I think that the most interesting thing, though, again, is just the need to define him. That's so different. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a very famous quote from his book, Mere Christianity. And I'm sure many of you have heard it before. But C.S. Lewis writes, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So this crowd who looks on Jesus and says he's a prophet really wasn't listening very closely because it doesn't line up with the things Jesus said about himself. If he is a prophet, what he was saying was wildly wrong. But he's God, and so what he said was wildly right, amazingly true. We continue on, verse 45. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, "'Why did you not bring him?' The officers answered, "'No one ever spoke like this man.' The Pharisees answered them, "'Have you also been deceived?' Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law, that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, Nicodemus. I added that last part, but I think it was probably there or implied. I enjoy this scene at the end of chapter 7 so much. I really do. Uh, and part of why I enjoy it is because, as many of you know, I used to work as a police officer. And it was fairly routine when, during those years when I did that job. I'd show up at work and my boss would say, hey, an arrest warrant has come in for so-and-so. I want you to go out and pick him up. And I just like to imagine the scene... If I had come back to the police department, and they said, hey, did you arrest so-and-so? And And I said, ah, no. Did you find him? Yes. Why didn't you arrest him? Honestly, he's kind of amazing. (laughs) Like, how would that have gone? I probably would have been fired, maybe, reprimanded, surely. But that's basically what plays out here. The Pharisees say, go pick him up. He's a lawbreaker. He's a threat to the public. He's a menace. Go pick him up. And so they do. The thugs march out and they go find Jesus and they go, this guy's pretty cool. (laughs) We can't arrest him. It feels like it would be like sacrilegious to lay hands on him. The same feeling that's welling up in the crowd to like define him, to say, man, who is this? is in them also, and they just can't bring their hands to act on the orders that have been given to them. They just can't do it. And they come back to the Pharisees empty-handed. And in the Pharisees' question, why did you not bring him? There is great surprise. There is great hatred. There is great disappointment. But I think mostly there is a great insult to their pride. Their power and authority were not equal to their hatred and pride. Jesus had greater command over their officers than they did. This is a horrifyingly humiliating moment for the Pharisees. These men who are dressed in all the vestiges and the office of authority in that culture and in that time said, I'm sending you out to arrest them. They are not used to being publicly disobeyed by their own officers. But their officers come back empty-handed, and to their credit, they don't come up with an excuse. Like, there would have been a riot if we tried to do it, or we just couldn't get close enough, or He had bodyguards, whatever. They don't come up with any such nonsense. They tell plainly and honestly, have you heard him? (laughs) I mean, the guy's amazing. This is an incredible moment. And how wounded were the Pharisees at their failure to master even these, their servants. Jesus' is master even of their servants. Oh, their blood boils seething with anger. And in their response to the officers, they essentially say, you shouldn't believe in him because we don't. And this is the lowest form of intellectual snobbery. And and as a teacher of the law, they don't point to any scriptures in this moment. How would you feel about me as your pastor if you came to me with a difficult question about morality or some point of truth. And I said, oh, you shouldn't believe that, because I don't. (laughs) I know your caliber as a church well enough to know that would go over like a lead balloon. That would not be convincing at all. And I doubt it was very convincing in this context either. They point to themselves as the arbiters of truth, not the word of God. This is a very telling moment, as well as kind of a pathetic moment. This whole episode demonstrates Jesus' authority as greater than theirs. In the end, these officers honor Jesus, not the Pharisees. The arresting officers feared arresting Jesus more than returning empty-handed to their bosses. Charles Spurgeon said they could not take hold of him because he had fairly taken hold of them. And there's a lot contained, no doubt, in their report that no one ever spoke like this man. What did they mean when they said, like this? We have to guess. But my guess is they'd never encountered anybody who spoke with such authority, with such a grasp of the essential, plain meaning of the Scriptures, with such practical force and persuasiveness, and with so little regard for the traditional ideas of the Jewish teachers. My guess is they'd sat through a lot of synagogue, but they'd never heard anything as refreshing and positive and hopeful as what Jesus had said and delivered with such force. The Pharisees complained that the guards are deceived and the believing crowd is accursed. And all the while, they are ironically blind to the fact that this is a good description of their own condition. Deceived and sitting under a curse. Pride is a blinding force. Somebody who's consumed with pride is almost never aware of their pride. Unless God, in an extreme act of mercy, cuts through the fog and mercifully makes them aware of it. And these Pharisees are not very self-aware. For example, isn't it ironic when they, the teachers of the law, complain that the people are ignorant of the law? It's almost like a teacher saying, These students, they don't know anything in preparation for this test. Well, whose fault is that? (laughs) Whose job has it been to teach illiterate people the law of God? It's theirs. How ironic and not very self aware is it for the Pharisees to complain that the people are ignorant of the law? It's true enough, I suppose, but whose fault is it? And they who have the law practically committed to memory are completely ignorant of its most basic meaning. And then they call people accursed who are drawing nearer and nearer by degrees in their understanding to this vast ocean of blessings. In their statement that Jesus is the Christ, even if they don't understand that perfectly, they are much nearer to all the blessings that come with submitting to the truth of that than these Pharisees who are sitting under the curse. Now, we bring this around, and any time we open God's Word and study it together, and we've just walked through a power-packed section of verses, uh, the thing we always have to do before we sing the last song and walk out and get in our cars is ask the question, so what? (laughs) What does this have to do with us? What are we going to do with this passage of Scripture this week? How are we gonna live it and let it settle down into our hearts? We know what it meant in the first century, but what does it mean for us in 2020 today? As I reflect on the officers returning empty handed and the multiple times throughout chapter seven when it has been pointed out that though people wanted to arrest Jesus and do do him harm, they didn't do a thing. This has happened repeatedly. I didn't go through and count, but it's been more than a couple where they said they wanted to arrest him, but they didn't lay hands on him. They wanted to kill him, but nobody did anything about it. They wanted to silence the guy, but nobody stepped up and said, shut up. They never do any of these things even though they really want to. I come away with this truth, and this has been especially precious to me in the midst of an election year. You know, I think the church, in the midst of all of the, the, the very contentious conversation going on in our culture, Uh, sometimes feels like we're pushed off our feet a little bit. But I want you to know this, and believe it, nothing can come against Jesus or his church that is not allowed. Nothing. In its proper time. And whatever comes has been allowed and must therefore be for our ultimate good. Do you believe that this morning? Nothing can come against the church unless it's allowed. And if it has been allowed, it is for our good. I'm a big fan of the book Pilgrim's Progress by uh, Bunyan. It's one of the great classics of Christian literature. There's a scene in that book, it's in chapter 7, if you've ever read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I won't show, show of hands. Um, but it's a great book. If you're you're into Christian literature, uh, I would just really encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress if you never have. But in chapter seven, there's a scene there where the hero, or our, our protagonist, Christian, on his way to the celestial city, comes to a place where he sees two lions on either side of the path. The only way forward is the path, but there are two lions on either side of the path. Bunyan writes, looking very very narrowly before him as he went, he espied two lions in the way. Now, thought he, I see the dangers that mistrust and timorous were driven back by. The lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. Then he was afraid and thought also himself to go back after them, for he thought nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name is Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained, and are placed there for trial of faith where it is, and for discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come unto thee. Then I saw he went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter. He heard them roar, but they did him no harm. In John Bunyan's inspired allegorical tale, the Christian life is represented as a journey towards heaven, the celestial city. It's a journey full of dangers, temptations, and snares, And in order to arrive finally at his destination, the pilgrim, Christian, must face up to all of these and conquer them. He is not without help, but his struggle is very real. In the above quote, he has to pass through a narrow ravine, and it's getting dark. He sees two lions at either side of the path, and they start to roar at him. He's terrified. He stops in his tracks. You can imagine. But then a voice shouts out to him that he shouldn't fear, keep to the center of the path, no harm will come to him, the lions are chained. And this is an important spiritual lesson for all Christians. Our lions are chained. Whatever whatever danger, threat, worry rises in our minds, all these are held in check and limited in action by God. He allows them for the testing and the strengthening of our faith, not to do us harm. And that's a great image. That's an image I think we need to walk around with in the midst of these days, that our lions are chained. Nothing can come against Jesus or his church that is not allowed. And if it has been allowed, it must be for our good. It is also a stark reminder that difficulty, fear, and struggle are really an integral part of the Christian life. That's normative for the Christian life. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. In the book of Job, it says, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But whatever has come has been allowed and must therefore be for our ultimate good. Bunyan concludes this uh, with, a po- with a bit of poetry. He says, Difficulty is behind, fear is before. Though he's got on the hill, the lions roar. A Christian man is never long at ease. When one fright's, when one fright's gone, another doth him seize. You know, any of the days in our past that we look back on and say, those were the happy days. Uh, we should really experience those days when they're there and enjoy them. They are momentary seasons of grace and rest, but they are not to be considered our normal state. They don't last, at least not in this fallen world. But I do just want us to know and understand this very important truth. Again, at the risk of being overly repetitious, nothing can come against the church that has not been allowed. And if it has been allowed, trust God's goodness that somehow it is for your good. Uh, C.S. Lewis in another book that I have read and thought about a lot, he likens trials that enters into our life to the experience of taking your cat to the vet <laughs> for a surgery. <laughs> no part on the cat's part doesn't think anything good is happening, right? Right? It never thinks, oh, this is good. Finally, they're going to fix me. <laughs> it just thinks something horrible is happening to that poor cat. Right? It's uh, taken it away from the place it loves and is comfortable and goes under the knife. And but does the master of the cat doing that do it to hurt the cat? No, of course not. It's out of love for the cat, concern for the cat. And this is very true when we go through a trial as a Christian. Our perspective is so limited. All we're typically aware of is the discomfort, the pain, that this is so wrong and disordered. I hate all of this. But being able to have wisdom in the midst of those times is the ability to say to God, you've allowed this, therefore it must somehow be for my good or for the good of the the advance of your kingdom, or something. This must be better than not going through it. And this is the very heart of humility in relationship to God. I find it's often very lacking in myself. But as I was studying this passage of Scripture this week, and just seeing Jesus, them not being able to lay hands on him, I saw chained lions. I thought of Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress. But eventually, he does go to the cross, Eventually, they do lay hands on him, and they drive nails through him, and they hang him up, and he dies a horrifying, agonizing death. That was allowed, but it was for good. It was so that we can celebrate today. And when Jesus says, "Take up your cross and follow me," he's calling us to live a sim- similar, with a similar ethos, an understanding to everything that the that the world throws at us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, that is a challenging truth. And God, I am a simple-minded creature in relationship to you. And when pain and difficulty enters my life, God, my first thought is not that you're up to doing something good, but that maybe you've fallen asleep at the switch. Maybe you're not watching. And of God, of course, in that moment, it reveals a small view that I'm tempted to hold of you that's not true to who you are. That, God, it's because of your care and concern that you allow our test to be strengthened and refined and proven in the midst of trials. Father, I thank you for the knowledge that our lions are chained, that the enemy can't make one move against us unless you allow it. And if you allow it, it must be part of the plan. It must be good. And so, God, we can look on life with a light heart. We can go forward not wondering if the outcome is uncertain. It's all very certain. God, thank you for opening the eyes of our heart to see and to believe these things. And help us to live this week, God, in such a way that reveals that we believe it. God, help us not be tossed every which way by everything that happens in the culture or in the news, in the election, but God, help us to face the future with a quiet confidence in you and an unshakable belief that whatever comes is part of your plan. Father, we celebrate you for your sovereignty, for your strength. Help us, God, to live in a way that reveals that we believe these things. In Jesus' name, amen.